1: Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Trikel, and thanks for joining me today for another episode of With Flying Colors. Today, I'm joined by a member of my team, Todd Miller, and we're going to discuss the role and elements of good policies. Todd, before we jump into the role and elements of good policies at credit unions, for those of you who may not have heard your past episodes or may not know you yet, could you give a little bit of your background?
0: Sure. I was with NCUA from November of 1987 all the way to June of 2021 when I retired. It was a very enjoyable career. I enjoyed it a lot, learned a lot. I was at the various roles I um, filled during my um, career. I was examiner, of course, is what I started right out of college. I was a problem case officer. I spent 10 years as a regional capital market specialist. In the last 10 years of my career, I was the director of special actions in the Western region dealing with
1: troubled credit unions, dealing with troubled credit unions, where you got to see some challenges, no doubt. It's, it's interesting. So we had three jobs, the same examiner, problem case officer and director of special actions. Also, I was on the, on the West coast, I guess it was your region, but you know, the regions merged together, but, and you started, it didn't dawn on me until you just said it, you started a year after me and you worked exactly one year more than me. So our tenure is, I think you might have one more month on than I. So anyway, I digress. All right. So policies, what are they? What makes them good? What's their role? And what's their element? So we're going to talk about policies. And so what, based on, you know, you just described what your background is. So something in your background, something that you saw made you want to discuss this as a topic, Todd, what was that?
0: Well, there's a number of things is why I wanted to discuss this as a topic. If you go back and look at what we do, we help credit unions pass their exams. And of course, a lot of the exam issues are policy related. And underlying that is we expect boards to have the general direction and control of their credit union. And how do boards carry out their duties? Basically, they do that through their written policies. And secondarily, they also do it through their business plan and their strategic plan. Those are the two primary ways that boards kind of carry out their duties to have that general direction and control. We talked about as a director of special actions, I dealt with troubled credit unions. Well, I also had 20 some years of dealing with what I would call very high performing credit unions as well. And there's some very consistent characteristics in these high performing credit unions. One, they have very strong corporate cultures and its policies and strategic plans is how they build those corporate cultures and how they convey that to staff. I always thought it was very interesting in the high-performing credit unions. You could go way down to branch managers and tellers, sit in the lunchroom, talk to loan officers. Every employee in these high-performing credit unions was on the same page. They knew what was in the strategic plan. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. They knew why they were supposed to be doing it. They were all very efficient organizations. They all had very strong policies across the organization. And it's a characteristic of high-performing credit unions. Their staff know what they're supposed to be doing, why they're supposed to be doing it, how they're supposed to be doing it. And that's all conveyed to them through written policies, that strategic plan, that business plan.
1: You know, you, you reminded me of something one of my employees in Albany used to say, that the regional office ran itself. And it ran itself because it had good policies, procedures and structure and corporate culture. And you get that when you have that all in place, you can just see how you can be a high performer. So that that's a correlation to a regional office that applies to the credit union world as well.
0: So- Well,
1: go ahead. maybe go ahead.
0: just another piece to that, maybe another way to paraphrase that and describe it is it's transparency across the organization. And we're gonna digress just a second because I can and I have the mic at the moment. But even if you look at my 35 years at NCUA, there are times when employee morale was better higher, lower. I mean, it was generally good the entire time, but there was times when it was better. And those years when it was better than others, it was always years where NCUA was more transparent. The level of transparency from the top to the bottom was better. And I think NCUA over the years is they tried to improve that. You know, they have that national supervision policy manual now. And I think they actually work at being a more transparent organization over time.
1: Yeah. And you know, and transparency goes to expectations. When, someone, when you're transparent and people know what your expectations are, people always desire to achieve expectations. And if you have the structure in place, it allows everybody to excel. So great point. All right. So specific to policies, what exactly are we going to dig into today, Todd?
0: Well, I think we'll break this down into kind of just three pieces. We'll talk about why you should have policies. I'll give you some just general thoughts on policies and how to execute them. And then last and probably the most important piece, we'll talk about common elements to good policy. And I don't care if you're writing a policy that's related to personnel, a lending policy, an ALM policy, a compliance policy. Policies have some common elements. And if you make your policy statements consistent throughout the organization, you'll just end up with a more transparent and effective organization. And we'll talk about some of those common elements. To a good policy statement.
1: Very good. So, Todd, why does a credit union need to have a set of comprehensive policies or set another way, even an individual policy that covers a particular specific topic? And what's the purpose of policies?
0: There are many, many reasons for this, and I'm just going to list them. It's not going to be all inclusive. We could probably spend an hour going through just why you should have a good policy. There's always NCA's hot button. Number one, they're required by regulation. And if you go through the regulations, by regulation, credit unions have to have specific policies. They need a lending policy. They need an interest rate risk policy. They need a liquidity policy. Those are mandated by regulation. If they're into member business loans, they need a member business loan policy. If they're buying participations, the regulation requires they have a participation policy. So first off, they're required by regulation. Kind of a corollary to them being required by regulation is good policies ensure compliance with the law. There's a plethora of regulations out there that you have to follow from hiring all the way to non-discrimination in your lending, everything in between. Um, But another purpose of policy, just ensure your staff know what those legal requirements are and you comply with law. Policies are a good training tool. You know, when you hire a new employee, how do you get them familiar with the organization and what they're supposed to do and what the organization's expectations are? So policies are a good training tool. One of them you mentioned earlier when we were talking about NCUA, policies are there to set expectations. You communicate that corporate culture, their values and mission, and that corporate culture is really important. And there's a lot of benefits to a strong corporate culture organizations with strong corporate cultures, they tend to be more efficient. They have lower employee turnover and your employees tend to be happier. They know what expectations are and they meet them. makes for a more pleasant work environment for all your employees. There's fewer compliance failures and service quality to your members just tends to be much higher when you have good written policies. Second piece of that or continuation of that is They set standards for behavior and conduct and performance for both employees and management. And this is really important that people know how they should behave and they should have standards. And this is kind of an important one for management. If you expect your employees to follow policies, you need to make sure as management and executives that you're following themselves. From a board perspective, good policies keep management accountable. And from a human resource perspective, It helps you defend against lawsuits. And it lets employees know where to get help in terms of if they have any questions about employment or about any aspect of their job. Policies let them know where they need to go to get answers. So that's just some general reasons and the purposes for having policy and good policy statements.
1: There's a lot there to unpack, Todd. And as you were going through it, I'm going to highlight one of the topics you mentioned, which is it's good to have one because they're required by regulations. And where the rubber meets the road, you and I were chatting with the credit union the other day and we were having a discussion. The credit union had a draft examination report. They thought that perhaps some things didn't need to be in a document resolution and that perhaps they could be in an examiner finding. And as they brought that up, you know, you pointed out to them that the items that were in the document resolution were there because they were violations of regulations, and you didn't think, and you thought that that's probably where they should be because they were a violation of of regulation. Anything you want to? I'm assuming you agree with that, but anything you want to add to that thought?
0: No, I'm not going to add to it. I agree that place there was like I think it was four violations of regulation, and policies are so important. You just shouldn't, credit shouldn't get themselves into where you have multiple violations of regulations, and if you have good policy statements and good training programs to educate your staff on those policy statements, you're not going to end up with regulations of violation.
1: Very good. So you've touched on some of the reasons or purposes for good policy statements, and you also mentioned that we're going to discuss discuss common elements of a good policy. Before we dive into that, are there any other general thoughts before we get into specific policy elements that you'd like to chat about?
0: I do. I have a couple things before we get into. Basically, the common elements of a good policy. These are just some things that I've learned over my years of with experience with NCUA. I didn't read these in a book. They're just my observations. We're not a management consultant. These are just kind of my views. Um, implementation. It needs to happen from the top down. And I mean, the board needs to be clear in setting expectations. Um a lot of times they do that with that strategic plan of business plan. They do that in their policy statements as well. Um, you want to have a high performing organizations. Your executives need to set a good example and they need to abide by policies if they expect staff to do so as well. So lead from the front, sound policies are implemented from the top down. Policies need to be readily accessible by staff. It's hard to expect your staff to comply with policies if they don't know what they are. So within your organization, have them in your library, make them easily accessible to staff. if you're a loan officer, your lending policies probably should be in writing in your desk. Have staff meetings, go over them periodically, but they should be easy to find for staff. Hmm. And so make them accessible, spend some time training on them, communicate them throughout the organizations. Policies need to be kept current. And we find this a lot with our clients and exam work and organizations grow and their policies get outdated. They don't grow with the organization. So if you're going to have a good policy program, you should have review dates put in there. Let's look at these periodically. Let's make sure we keep them current. A new regulation comes out. Read the regulation. Is that consistent with current policies? They need to be kept current. On the other side of the coin, while employees should be educated on policy, they should also know that there's consequences for not following policies. While expectations are important, training is important, there does need to be consequences if policies are not followed. Um, You'll have a breakdown in the organization if there isn't consequences for not following policy. Policy exceptions should be documented and reported. A lot of people write policies and you can never write a policy that's going to cover every situation that will come up with a member. So there are going to be times where there's exceptions to serve a member or help out an employee or whatever it may be, but policy exceptions need to be documented and reported. If you get into the situation where you're having more exceptions or a lot of exceptions to policy, it's time for the board and management sit down and say, is that policy appropriate? We're having to go through and create a lot of exceptions to policies to serve our members. Well, maybe our policy needs a little bit of revision.
1: Todd, that last comment, you remind me of a line from a song, which is, it's a one-time thing. It just happens a lot. (laughs) And if it happens too much, like you said, maybe it's time to reevaluate the policy. When the exception becomes the norm, let's tweak that. The other thing I want to say. When you talked about it coming from the top down, it, it reminded me of you know the NCUA uh, security system in the central office. This is kind of an abstract reference, but I would occasionally forget my badge and I would walk into work because I lived close to the office. And I remember the first time after I had been executive director and I forgot my badge and I had to let the guard would let me in, and I saw in the look of his eye, it was like, well, Mark really needs to have me be I need to escort him up the elevator, and before he Even hesitated, I said, I know you need to come with me. You know, I wanted to let him know that I was going to follow the rule. And when we got on the elevator and there were other folks in the building and they saw that I had to follow the rules as executive director, you can really set the tone at the top by every action you take in the credit union, whether it's policy or procedure. So I thought of that example when you started talking about the importance of of, uh, compliance from the top. So, all right. With that background, let's get into what the key elements that are common to all policies. You mentioned interest rate risk. You mentioned liquidity. You mentioned uh, commercial lending, if you got that. There are key elements that are going to be in every policy. Let's walk through that, Todd.
0: I will. And this is the corporate culture thing, too. When you sit down and write your policies, you put all these elements in there, and it should be consistent how you write your policies. These across the organization. You just see that in high-performing credit unions. There's a format to these, but I'll go through what I see as some of the common policy elements that should be in any policy. If I kind of back it up the way I would summarize it is your policy should really describe your risk management process in the organization. So common policy element, purpose and objectives of the policy. Let's tell the organization and our staff. Why do we have this policy and what are we trying to accomplish with this policy? Kind of the second common element that I would say that you'll find in good policy statements is they establish accountability. Who's responsible to identify, measure, monitor, control risk with respect to that area? And there will be some internal controls laid out within the policy. And this is part of the accountability. You separate risk-taking from reporting. It's just good accountability. You separate the person who's making decisions from who's reporting on the outcomes. It's a good internal control. Another common element to good policies is the board will communicate its risk appetite within those policies. I'll call it a risk appetite statement, just kind of some examples of things that fall under that whole category of risk appetite statements. You'll have organizational-wide balance sheet limits. Well, X percent of net worth will go into commercial loans. X percent of net worth will go into indirect loans. X percent of net worth will be to grade D borrower, C and D subprime loans. You'll have interest rate risk limits. You'll have liquidity limits. Whatever the policy is dealing with, you'll have some balance sheet-wide limits. There should be limits on individual authority within a policy individuals at this level are authorized to do x individuals at this level are authorized to do y if we get to this point it will take a committee or multiple people to approve that there should be limits on individual authority there should be limits on how that authority is delegated downstream so you can authorize a cfo to purchase investments up to 2 million dollar blocks well you should specify what can he let his subordinates do that should be laid out you know how much can An individual with policy, the authority, delegate it downstream. Limits need to be real, not just guidelines. And over my years, lots of credit they like to put guidelines in policies. You get into higher performing organizations, there's not guidelines in policies. There's hard limits in policies. Guidelines might lead you up to a limit, but limits need to be real. I think you need to be wary of guidelines that create some wishy-washy corporate culture limits get fuzzy. You can have guidelines, but they need to be backed up with real hard limits on the back end. Limits need to be triggered before risk profiles change significantly. You'll see a lot of creditings, a lot of organizations, they'll have the green, yellow, red thresholds as a way to point out policies. Hey, when we get to that yellow, let's slow down. The other thing is, is and I see this as a weakness and it happens in many credit unions, there will be a regulatory limit and they will make that their policy limit. When, I'll just give you an example, you know, we have a regulatory limit that you can have 20, low-income credit unions can have 20% of their deposits from non-member. And you'll see people write that in their limit, but they're at zero. There needs to be something triggered when they go from zero for 10 years to 5% or 10%. It's not an effective policy limit if it doesn't create some warnings as you change your risk profile. Another one is investment. I see when I was a capital market specialist, there was a lot of Cardians wrote investment policies. Their policies authorized everything in the regulation, from repurchase transactions to high-risk private label mortgages. In a lot of cases, the Cardians have never, ever bought those instruments. They will never, ever buy those instruments. They don't understand half of those instruments. Things like that should not be in your policy. Your policies should be real. They should reflect the risk appetite, and they should identify if your risk profile is changing along the way. So they should be unique. Those risk limits should be unique to each credit union. The next one is probably what I would call maybe one of the most important aspects of a sound policy, and that's a system of reports based on a risk assessment. Reporting, I'll summarize it this way. It needs to demonstrate management's compliance with policy or turn it around. Management needs to demonstrate compliance with policy in all aspects of the reporting. So if you have a policy limit, there needs to be reports on that. You have early warning indicators within your policy. There needs to be reports on that. Now, reporting doesn't always mean every single thing goes to the board. But within the organization, there needs to be reporting to some level of responsibility. I'll just throw something out. A lot of credit unions are involved in indirect lending, for example. Most places track dealer delinquencies they necessarily need to tell your board what the delinquency level is of every indirect dealer. They should know delinquency overall, maybe delinquency for an indirect lending program, but at dealer level, they don't need to know that. But certainly your loan committee and your loan officers or chief lending officer, they should know what that delinquency is at a dealer level. That's a key risk indicator. So that reporting doesn't necessarily need to be the board level, but there needs to be a system of reports that provide your early warning indicators, a demonstration with our compliant and demonstrate compliance with the credit union's risk appetite, whatever that might be. There should be reporting on risk limits. If you have organizational wide risk limits, there should be reporting on that. All those limits that are a percentage of net worth, I would argue those are limits that should be reported all the way to the board level. It's kind of interesting, and this is a little sidetrack, but I've seen several high performing credit unions they have a compliance report, and it's interesting where you see it in the board packet in those high performing creditings. You see it close to the front. It's not on page 300, it's on page three or five or seven. It's somewhere close to the front in those high performing creditings because they take it seriously. And a lot of times there are strategic plan elements on that type of compliance report as well. Policy exceptions, they need to be reported. We kind of talked about it a little bit earlier on general thoughts if you get too many exceptions it's time to review your policy another thing with reporting and compliance with policies i think it's important for boards especially that your reporting process shows trends over time it doesn't show what your limit was this month it shows where we're at this month it shows where we were at last month a quarter ago a year ago whatever the case may be i think for boards They have a huge amount of common sense and they might not be experts at any one thing. But I think most board members will, if they look at a trend and they see things changing, it will prompt them to ask a question. And even for management, it's good to know what direction you're moving and how fast you're moving. It's not just where you are, but where have you been and where are you going? You kind of need those headlights down the road. So trend reporting is very, very important in my mind. And I think for a board member, it's probably more important than even knowing where we're at today. It's where have we been, where are we at, directionally, where are we going? I think you need all three of those types of reports and monitoring, and that should be written down within your policy. You should define this reporting process very clearly in each of your policy statements. And then last we talked about, the final thing is there should be a systematic review date. Not every policy needs to be reviewed every year. By regulation, there are certain policies that do need to be reviewed every year, but there should be some ownership within the organization and a specific review date for all policy. Even in CUA, we go through all our regulations every three years. In theory, we go through them every three years anyway. I don't know why I'm saying we, we're retired. We're not part of this uh... anymore. Habit, I guess. But that review data is important, and you know I think a lot of credit unions when they get findings, you just see it quite frequently. They're going to hard, they're working every day. They're at five hundred million. All of a sudden, you turn around, now we're at a billion five, and policies haven't changed, but we've got all these new programs and different things going on. And it's important as an organization grows that those policies grow with them. The examiners say they want it appropriate to your complexity. And it just needs to so set up a process to review them periodically so they grow with you.
1: That's a lot you threw at the audience, a lot you threw at me, Todd. I've I'm gonna highlight a couple of things and then I'm gonna have a couple follow-up kind of questions for you before we wrap up here. But you know, your last second to last point on trends and a point in time. To me, the word that jumped out is context. I need to have context. I like to see things over time. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? You your point that just knowing a number today can pretty much be irrelevant if you don't know what's the goal, what's allowed, and where have we been, and where are we going? And I think you really said it well that providing that allows the board members to understand and provides them the opportunity to ask better questions, and that can lead to a dialogue that can lead the credit union to a better place. So that's my take on trends at a point in time. Jumping back to limits on individual authority. Things that jumped into mind there is when people violate that limit to authority, there's the potential that you could have bond claim in situations like that under the most intense of those scenarios. Any thoughts relative to that side of things as it relates to limits on individual authority?
0: Yeah. And I'm going to go back to something else I said earlier to the tone from the top. If you have one employee violating limits in his own authority or her own authority, Other employees are going to see that, and you're going to see that behavior occur through with other people in the organization. It's a morale killer when employees see management saying, do this, and they do something else. It's just not good for morale. A lot of times examiners find this because those employees that are unhappy and disgruntled about that will tell their examiners that this is going on. That happens a lot. But yes, bond claims are never good. And one of the things I mentioned in my general thoughts, there needs to be consequences for not following policies. The system tends to break down if there's not consequences for not following policy and individual limits are a key part of it. And I'll just say in dealing with our troubled credit unions and some of the credit unions that NCUA has had to pay out insurance funds to resolve at the heart of those, it seems too many times there's individuals who just started out with violating their individual policy limits and it became a big problem that cost the insurance fund money.
1: Well said, well said. So, so this is a kind of a two-part question before we wrap up. As you were talking about board packages and what's included, what's excluded, I'm pretty sure in your mind, you have a, a feeling of what an optimal board package is You know, when you and I are talking to different clients or when we're we're working trying to assist credit unions, oftentimes you'll say to me, I'd love to see the board package because that, again, that provides you context to best understand what's happening at the credit union. So along with that, separately, you and I had chatted about there's probably going to be some future podcasts that come out of this podcast. Any, can you comment on either of those two statements I just made?
0: Yeah, I just have a feeling Mark has shared a list of podcast ideas with a bunch of his staff and clients and other things. And I think you're going to see future podcasts potentially on individual policies rather than general elements, what should be in an interest rate policy or what should be in a business loan policy. I can see that coming. Board packages are an interesting thing. A couple of times in my career, I'd sit down with groups of my own staff and say, hey, what should be in a good board package? And board packages are very interesting because there's things the board wants to know, and then there's things they need to know. And you can't necessarily make them read it every month, but I will go back to it's important that management and executives give the board all the information they need to know. And maybe they won't read it every month, but maybe they read it every three or four months or something of that nature. I think it would be very easy to spend a half a day sitting down with the board is what's in your board packet. And I think credit union board packets, a lot of times they evolve. The examiner says, put this in there and they put it in there. And someone else says, this should be in your board packet. They add another sheet in there. And pretty soon this board packet is huge. And they've never really went back at any given point in time as they've grown and said, what needs to be in there? You know, certainly if the board wants to know something, you need to put it in. The rest of it, I would go back. Management needs to demonstrate compliance with um, policies and give them progress reports on that strategic plan but board packages it's it's a very interesting topic of what should be in there and it reflects the nature of the credit union and I'll just throw out an example one of the problem credit unions I had at one point in my career they were about 2 or 3 billion dollars were sitting there of course they ended up in special action so they have negative earnings and all kinds of problems and I think they had at that time 42 branches in their cost accounting system, 31 of their branches were losing money. And my comment to the CEO is Don't you think your board members would maybe like to know that? Most credit unions, you know, they don't necessarily report all that branch profitability to the board. And there's probably not a necessity to, but at a strategic plan, occasionally, it's probably information that you should share with them sometimes. It's a pretty significant fact, when three-fourths of your branches are losing money, and maybe your board members might want to know that. So it gets situational. If all 42 branches were making money, well, it probably wasn't something they would have needed to share with their board. So board packages are an interesting topic. When I was an RCMS and examiner, though, the first thing I would always do was just, I want to open a board packet. I would share it with every exam member on the team. In these high-performing credit unions that I mentioned, you can go through the board packet and you can pretty much figure out what they're trying to do and how they're doing it just from a single board packet it's very transparent in these high performing organizations what's going on and you can figure it out just looking at a board package
1: that's a good place to wrap so the example of the branch offices like you said if more than half of them are losing money that seems to fall into the category of the need to know you said there's the want to know and there's the need to know they need to know that so that they can take some actions to lead the credit union into the future so another great episode, Todd. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with the folks that will be listening. And that's it for today. I want to thank everybody who listened for their time. I'm Mark Trikel, and I hope you join us again next time for With Flying Colors.